sometimes churches don't think that the cultural expression can change as the biblical values stay the same because the cultural around us changes. And so giving young people an opportunity to really uh, be immersed in in really good, strong biblical values, be able to read the Bible for themselves and to understand how to apply the Bible to their own lives means that the expression can change over time. Welcome back, everyone, to the Shock Absorber podcast, and I'm very excited again to be joined, as usual, by my two co-hosts for this season, Tim Bilharts. How are you? I'm doing very well, thanks, Joel. Excellent. Thank you. Children's pastor at Soul Revival Church. That is correct. You having a good morning? I'm having a great morning. I'm Excellent. on the Shock Absorber. <laughs> That's great. And, um, of course, we have Stu Crawshaw, senior pastor of Soul Revival Church. Hello, Joel. How are you? you have a good I'm morning. very well, have thank you. Have you had a good morning, too? I've had a great morning, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Got given a bit of a hard time this morning. I have, yeah, I have had some banter. It's been fun though. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, we are still talking about how we are engaging young people in the church, and we've gone through many different approaches um, across the last few episodes. But we're about to talk about family ministry. But but first, we always like to start with the cultural artifact, Tim. I think you came up with one. You're sitting in the middle. Do you want to tell us what your your artifact is? Yeah, my cultural artifact, uh, which I've already been roasted on this morning, um, <laughs> but is The Middle. Uh, it was an American sitcom with um, Patricia Heaton as the mum uh, and the janitor from Scrubs as the dad. I can't remember the actor's name. Um, but it, I don't think it got a lot of traction in Australia. Whenever I bring it up, um, it seems like Roz and I are the only people I know that ever watched the show, but we really liked it. Um, but it's uh, sort of middle-class suburbia, um, white middle-class suburbia of America and just you know, a pretty um, benign PG sitcom based on the family antics and what they get up to. Um, so Roz and I really enjoy it. Uh, big thumbs up from us. Apparently no one else uh, that I know is big thumbs up. You can put an IMDb review up saying it's a really, really good show but no one else has. I, I, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know if you got the, oh, no, you no. Got the Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> no, rating there. No, I was actually just looking up um, the janitor from Scrubs is Neil Finn. Neil right. Flynn. Neil Flynn, sorry. Yes. Yep. I think that's, yeah, I think that's the right guy, yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, so, but it, uh, the reason I, I thought of it was because we're, there's a lot of resonances, a lot of assumptions there about the white middle class American subculture, uh, which will come out as we talk about family ministry. Um, that there's a lot in the family ministry model that does have those, um, I think, white American middle class kind of values and principles. Um, and we can learn a lot from those, um, but also we want to be careful to not carry all of those assumptions with us when we think about the church. Um, and when we think about family, that family is a lot more broader than just mum, dad, um, two and a half kids. Um, and, and just to think about how do we uh, somehow challenge those presumptions um, and also think about the fact that actually family, there's lots of different diverse families um, and the way that family can be expressed. And also we all want to think about how does the church relate as a, a family, a household, a village, and, and what do those metaphors mean uh, when we come to church as well? Yeah, absolutely. Stu, just before we go on to describing what the family ministry approach is, I just... Um, would really love you to visit the pre-industrial revolution thing that you like to talk about, which is the how villages and people grew up in villages prior to the industrial revolution. Which I know you always—it's very uh, important part of your research. Yeah, done. one of one of the things that 
we keep coming back to is how technology has changed the family and the family unit has changed over history right through uh, all the millennia of, of families, you know, in different cultural contexts all over the world. But uh, there was a particularly large change with the Industrial Revolution because before the Industrial Revolution, 70% of the population of the earth lived in villages. And so people living in villages uh, lived with their extended family within the village and everybody were more interconnected and needed each other. So, for example, uh, an example of that is in the villages, often in agrarian contexts, uh, the older people had the knowledge of when to plant and how to plant. And so the young people needed that that knowledge but the the older people needed the young people's strength to be able to to you know drive the bullocks and collect the 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 produce from the farm and so there was this intergenerational um stability because old needed young and young needed old so the young needed the wisdom of the old and the old needed the strength of the young when you move uh to the technological era of the industrial revolution that was sparked by steam engines uh people lost their reliance on each other and all of a sudden new knowledge becomes more powerful than old knowledge. So the young people don't need the old people anymore because young people actually can adapt and change and know the technology better than the old people. And um, unfortunately there's a, there's the, a schism in the family where where uh, it's a bit harder for the older people to pass on the traditions and the values of the past in this changing world of technology. An example of that was my uncle was a TAFE teacher in Bankstown TAFE teaching um, young young uh, people how to do panel beating and he ended up deciding um, in the mid-2000s that he might give it away because he was discovering that all the stuff that he was teaching them from the textbook was no longer relevant because the machines in the in the workshops were so advanced that he had wasn't aware of the latest changes so the young people in his course actually were teaching him what the latest technologies in panel beating were rather than him teaching them so i think that's a really really stark example of that so we live in it in an age now where young people don't need older people and so uh you know young people often laugh at older people even or or ignore them or there's this you know there's something on the abc recently uh which is an australian television channel the um, national broadcaster that was looking at ageism in australia and how old people are just ignored and neglected in our culture because they're, they're just not on the cutting edge of cultural change so one of the surprising things that we've tried to emphasize in the shock absorber is while we articulate the fact that young people understand culture and are adapting quicker we've tried to set up a framework where young need the old again so that the older uh, generations who have life experience of being christian and they have the wisdom of theological understanding of years of reading actually have a space to come together where we teach our young people that it's good to have elders and to be taught by them but also that the elders need the young people as well because uh, since the 1960s there's been a real division and the generation gap has got even worse because young people culturally have started to break away from older people and so you know that whole 1950s family unit of mum and dad and the two kids in the 1950s that that tv show seems to be um, playing around with that idea that that sort of was is the place where the generational wars took place in the 1960s in the late 1960s where young people started listening to rock and roll music and parents started to fight against those mm. trends and that's again another illustration uh, of how generations can actually work against each other rather than work together so the family ministry idea is to try and hark back again to uh, before the 
Industrial Revolution and say, can we rediscover how families can pass on the gospel to their kids again? Yeah, yeah that's cool. That's a really good summation. So thank you for that. There was, um, you were talking about uh, uh, the older generations having problems with technology. I was just reminded of how my mum used to make me always set the VCR to record, but technology has advanced so much that she doesn't even need to record anything anymore. She just yeah. knew and just selected. So Yeah, I always have a bit of a giggle to myself when young people laugh at me because I don't know the latest technology. I'm, li- I'm like, yeah, well, wait till you have kids and then they'll be laughing at you as well. So yeah. the more you laugh at me, you know, you're probably creating a culture that continues on this sense where the generations laugh at each other and, and young people don't respect older people so and look some of the different cultures in the world have still got really strong cultural nuances of um previous generations where they really love their elders and they really respect them um a lot of migrant families in australia still really honor their their elders a lot more than people from my my kind of cultural background do yeah, I think that I think that's a really interesting point. I've, I see that with like some other families that I know that they how important their family is to them, and how uh, I know uh, in particular a South African family who came here when they were the kids were quite young, and they've really um, bound themselves to each other because it was so important that they came to this new country and they they had such a mm. um, really strong identity in their family that um, I think sometimes we do miss that in Australian culture. However, is that Tim? I'd love you to talk about family ministry. Is that the problem that family ministry is trying to address to some degree? Uh, not specifically. There's a couple of things that the family ministry model is trying to address. So, um, what uh, happened through the '90s um, and and even earlier, as we've talked, documented, and talked about, um, is this uh, the homogenous unit principle? Start, it separates out the generations, and so you have. Um, the children's ministry being looked after um, over here, then the youth ministry, then young adults and, and older adults. Uh, and so you, you're separating the generations from each other. The other thing that happens uh, with that is you also get the specialisation of youth ministry. Um, and so you get people who uh, see themselves vocationally as youth ministers um, and then eventually are children's ministers as well. And so you get people who whose speciality is to um, disciple and mission to teenagers or to children. And so what happens with those two things combined is you end up with churches uh, which say to parents, uh, we are dis- we're the specialists, we can disciple your kids for you. Um, and parents, particularly again in the middle class kind of setting, um, also expect that. Because, uh, you know, if I want my kid to learn swimming, I take them to a swimming coach. If I want them to learn violin, I take them to a violin teacher. If I want them to be grow as a disciple of Jesus, I take them to the specialist youth minister. Um, I've got a specialist for every area uh, of their life and their development. And it means that I'm not responsible for those things. Uh, and so the family ministry model is trying to push back against that and say, actually, no, you do. Um, Timothy Paul Jones is a really significant voice uh, in this area. So he wrote a number of significant family ministry books. Um, He's from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary um, in Kentucky. Uh, And he came out, he's come out a couple of times now to Australia um, and done things with with our um, Sydney Anglican Diocese and our context. So he's been quite an influential voice for us and for uh, YouthWorks College where I work. Um, so he's been really significant. He's got this great little uh, analogy that he uses to try and emphasise this family ministry idea. And he tells a story, he said, imagine if uh, I say to my wife, oh, um, I've got a, a date lined up for Friday night. And the really wonderful thing about this date uh, is it's with a professional dater. <laughs> 
uh, and he knows all the best restaurants. He knows how to get into the, the best theatres. Uh, he's great at table conversation. Uh, you will have an excellent time because he is a professional dater. And the best thing about it is that we don't need to worry about babysitting because I'll be at home watching <laughs> Star Wars with the kids. Uh, and he said, now, if, if my wife is at all interested in that idea, we've got significant issues <laughs> in our marriage. Yeah. Um, why, why is that pro such a problem? He's a professional. Uh, he said, no, no, no. The, the problem with that is that uh, the only appropriate person to date my wife is me. Uh, I'm not a professional dater, but I am the most appropriate person to go take my wife out on a date. And so he uses that to say, and it's the same when it comes to discipling our children within Christian households, uh, it is the responsibility of the adults in that household to be passing on the faith to the kids. Um, and it doesn't matter that there are professional children's and youth ministers. And he's not disparaging those roles. Um, and I would certainly not want to disparage those roles. I'm a really passionate children's minister. I, I love children's ministry. But he's saying, no, no, the, the role of the professional children's minister or youth minister in the church is not to be the primary spiritual caregiver of those children. Um, particularly for Christian households, that onus is and is always the, um, the parents or the, the guardians, the, the adults in that household. Uh, they are the most appropriate person, not because they're professional, but because they are the parents and guardians. Um, that makes them the most appropriate person. Uh, and so there's a lot of um, biblical foundation for this as well. You go through um, you've, uh, Deuteronomy 6 and the onus of parents to pass this on to your kids. Um, so that's a, a trend you can see right throughout the scriptures. Um, the way that the Passover is described, that when you're sitting at the Passover meal, kids ask these questions of your father uh, and the father will give you this response. He'll pass on that. When the Israelites go into the um, promised land, they cross the Jordan, they set up the stones and they say, when you come to this spot and your kids ask you this, tell them about the great things that God has mm. done. Uh, so there's a lot in there in the New Testament. You've got the household codes in Colossians and Ephesians where, again, it's, it's parents raise your kids to know and trust the Lord. And so there's a lot of um, good theological foundation here that says, yes, uh, parents, you are the ones who uh, to raise your children to know and love Jesus, you are the most significant spiritual influence they have. Um, and so that's what the family ministry model was trying to address, was it's trying to pull back from this um, abdicating of responsibility for children's and teenagers' discipleship to the church. Um, it's not just enough for them to go to kids' um, groups, Sunday schools, youth group. Um, the, the Christian schooling would be another way in which we could you know, maybe abdicate and say, oh, it's okay, they go to a Christian school, their teachers will teach them about Jesus. Uh, and the family ministry philosophy is pushing back on all of that and saying uh, those things are not wrong, but they are not ultimate. Uh, for children and also for teenagers, uh, it's the parents that have the most significant influence. Uh, and we also show that um, sociologically and, and statistically as well, that parents are the ones who have that influence. So that's what the family ministry model is trying to do. No, I think that was a really good summary as well. Um, Stu, I'd love to get your kind of response to that family ministry model to begin with and, yeah, then, and yeah. then maybe we can chat about maybe what, what I feel like there's some parts of it that we probably agree with and some yeah, maybe, 100%, same, maybe, maybe yeah. not so. I, I think it's really interesting Tim uh, um, made that connection again to the homogeneous unit principle and I think the homogeneous unit principle is trying to work with the culture 
and the cultural change. So one of the big proponents we keep coming back to, Mark Center, says that short of a revival, you've just got to go with culture. And so people have gone, well, young people and old people don't get together anymore. And, and so let's separate them into different separate ministries in the homogeneous unit principle. Uh, in the 1970s, there was a French philosophical movement that was thinking about the Industrial Revolution and the impacts it's had on our relationships. And the French uh, would talk about uh, this idea of insta, uh, sorry, um, industrialised relationships and they were saying that the the fact that we're so um, tied to machines now and we're so reliant on cars and computers and TVs and all these things we have, uh, that has actually unknowingly impacted the way we relate to each other. So we actually relate to each other through machines rather than just as human beings now. And one of the things that they've um, they identified in the 70s was a really important part of the Industrial Revolution was uh, was the process line that you, you have everyone has a different role and so the the whole professionalization of our culture has professionalized our relationships as tim was saying with the paul trip analogy that uh while that's a crazy analogy and no one would actually employ a professional dater to date their wife uh, we do outsource so many things in our life that we didn't used to before the industrial revolution so the french would uh say in the 70s they were saying that for example midwifery would take place within the context of the village that the older women would come to the birth of a baby and they would actually help the mother bring the baby into the world as a village uh, but understandably uh, medicine technological change has meant that we've now got people who are very very trained in the scientific application of midwifery and it's good that we have midwives that's a terrific thing but what the french are saying is while it's good that we have some of these things like accountants and bankers and um you know architects and things like that it, it does actually mean that we do outsource all of our um knowledge uh, all our or, or some of our humanness to these professional entities. So schools are great. You know, professional school teachers are terrific. We've got, I've got teachers in my family, but that doesn't that that, that doesn't stop families needing to teach their kids. And sometimes we just outsource the teaching of our children to to these to the school teachers. So what the French are saying is, how do we recapture our humanness, and how do we? Uh, uh, mitigate against some of the excesses of the industrial revolution we'll never go back to the village but how can we do that and i think the family ministry is trying to do that uh, i think it's really a bold and uh, great biblical uh, framework as well because biblically we're encouraged time and time again in the scriptures that that families are a really important unit within the church um, paul reminds us a number of times in the new testament that the first responsibility for looking after widows, for example, is the family. And if the family can't look after the widows and the orphans, then the church looks after the widows and the orphans. So uh, that's interesting because I think our instinct in our um, secular, industrialised world is to look for the government to look after widows and orphans or to look for the providers to look after it. One of the things we might come to in a podcast later with the shock absorber is how we're trying to re-engage the local community of the local church in looking after widows and orphans. But before we take that step, we need to encourage our families to look after widows and orphans within the family. And then when the families can't look after uh, some of those needs, then we, we do that together. And likewise with children, this is a energetic approach to try and say, you know, that we pass on the gospel from generation to generation, looking back into the Old Testament, uh, the the pattern that goes through the Old Testament is that within the family, even over a meal, that you remind the children of uh, what 
what the Exodus meant. You know, the the festivals of the families were all family festivals. The tabernacles, the festival of the tabernacles, the the children and the families and that would all make a tent together and they'd all stay in uh, that tent during the festival. So there's this idea of the family needs to pass on the, the stories. And I think sometimes we forget to pass on the stories because the new stories, the new ideas are actually more powerful than the old ideas. And sometimes we laugh at old things and don't take them as seriously as maybe we're encouraged to in the Bible. So this model is encouraging us to get back to that. Um, we can talk some more about some uh, some things we might not have in common with that. For example, the first thing that springs to my mind is uh, the fact that not all the young people that come to church come from a Christian family. So while we do need to encourage Christian families, we need to actually be a family for those kids that don't have Christian families. So I think it can be a bit more nuanced than than the family ministry. And I'm sure the, you know, the proponents of the family ministry would have um, you know, strategies for that kind of thing too. But I think to really bed it in the family means, you know, if I'm a, a couple that can't have kids and am I part of the church, if I call my, ch- you know, my service in the morning a family service, do I connect with that if I'm a single person, particularly if I'm 50 and I'm single? How do I connect up? Because the problem with the homogeneous unit principle, if you don't neatly fit into one of those categories, you actually could feel left out. But likewise, the problem with this could be that if we call uh, ministry family ministry if i don't have a family i might not feel a part of that so, so yeah so there's some there's some more around that and we'll talk about some other things around discipleship and mission as well but i think they're my initial thoughts it's um some of the things that we've continually talk about is that um uh, as we we've spoken about many times the homogeneous unit principle emerged as of the the youth quake and the cultural mm-hmm. revolution that happened in the 60s it almost feels like we're continually coming up with ways of trying to address what is happening in the culture and i feel like if we focus on the families very much so it does fit that homogeneous unit model it's kind of is would you agree with that or not like because it kind of feels like it we were talking about bolting things on it kind of feels like oh no we we need to change but we're just going to is another way to address we're not really addressing the core issue yeah yeah. i don't know if you Yeah, what do you think tim you got any thoughts on that yeah well this is why i was thinking about uh the middle at the start and these sort of white, middle-class, suburban principles that are kind of in play Um, because there is a lot of the literature that does um, try to... um, There are some authors who are wrestling a little bit with those ideas, but largely speaking, the the family ministry um, model just assumes uh, sort of a a white, middle-class, suburban identity, um, which is where you come up with those, those cultural things. So there is... Um, the, the natural transition of life where, you know, you, you're a child, you grow up, you're a teenager, uh, you go to uni, um, you get married, you have a little bit of a career, you start your own family um, and you sort of grow up. And there's this, this very straight line that is assumed that this is everyone's most ideal life path. Um, and so that's kind of embedded underneath some of this. So this assumes that that is the, the best life path. Which um, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I assume that was also like that's a, a cultural thing too in, in our society is that that's, you know, you buy a house, have kids, grow up and then die at an old age. Like <laughs> I kind of feel like... Have a dog and, and a boat like, maybe. Sorry? Buy a dog and a boat maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, right. that's, that's it. Right. Like there's all those kind of things that like perhaps we've been bred into our culture of like this is what we need to have. Like we get married at a certain age, we have kids at a certain age and like I don't feel like 
that's where you're, you're going with that. Yeah, that's right. So there, there are those principles. Um, and so, as you said, if you are someone who follows that trajectory, um, then the typical models of children's and youth, young adults, family ministry, um, all of those homogeneous um, pathways, including family ministry as a sort of a homogeneous unit um, of the, the mum, dad, two and a half kids, that that... Um, that model works fits for nicely. You. It fits nicely, and you fit into the model, so you fit the pathway. Um, the problem is that we, uh, you, for those who don't fit that, um, and there's an increasing number um, in our sort of particularly Western societies who don't fit that pathway, um, that don't do things in a linear fashion, um, that don't follow the typical. Uh, model um, that's always been some and now that some is increasing in number um, and s- what we're noticing is that that family ministry model does seem to exclude a number of people um, and so as you said the the danger is that you say oh we're all about family ministry and uh, you sound like you saying or people will hear you say uh, we are doing ministry for happily married mum, dad, two and a half kids. Uh, and so if it's hard to then work out, okay, I'm uh, a single parent. Where do I fit into that? Am I doing it wrong? Uh, I'm a young adult. Well, this church has nothing for me because until I'm married and have kids, it's not relevant. Uh, I'm a mid 40 year old single person. What do I fit? Uh, I'm an empty nester. Where do I fit? So there's a lot of people who don't fit that uh, model and don't fit the timeline. Uh, and so they can be feel as if the church is not for them when the church leans really heavily into um, that kind of uh, philosophy. Um, so that's there is so much that is good and true about that. And I think what we want to highlight uh, in the family ministry model is that there's a right emphasis on, yes, Christian parents pass on the faith to your children. So that's really key and really, really important. Um, and no matter what the context of your church is, that is a right emphasis to be placing on Christian parents, raise your kids to know and love Jesus. Um, And one of the things I really like about Deuteronomy 6, um, Psalm 78, um, both of those, I've got um, Deuteronomy 6 here. Uh, These are the commands, decrees and laws the Lord your God directed to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess so that you, your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live. What I really like is consistently throughout um, the scriptures, God has this generational concern, um, but also that the natural flow of um, God's people is parents passing on to their kids. Um, There's always an outward looking, so we'll we'll talk in a minute about um, the missional aspect of church. Um, But in terms of the natural flow of how God has designed his people to be, uh, it is parents passing on the faith to their kids and then passing on to their kids. And there's this really nice kind of vision in Deuteronomy 6 and Psalm 78 that it's like, even for those we don't yet know, like there's something really important about the way I raise my kids now that in, in God's providence uh, has impact on the faith of my great-great-grandkids that I won't meet until new creation. Um, but God is a God who can see that far in the future. And so I think all of those kind of emphasis are really, really good um, about the family ministry model. 
Um, I've, you know, I've lectured on the family ministry model. I have a whole subject that I teach on the family ministry model. There's, there's lots of really, really great things um, about it. Um, and another really important voice here is uh, the Think Orange book, uh, Reggie Joyner. Um, and that book is also really influential. Um, so he talks about that it, the church is kind of like the light of the gospel. So it's yellow. And the home is like the, the red, the love of the household. And when you bring those together and they're working in combination, you're thinking orange. Um, and so he's got a, risk, some, a lot of really helpful ideas about the way in which uh, churches should be helping the home and the home should be helping influence the church. And when they're all on the same page, thinking about how do we grow our kids and teenagers to know and love Jesus, you work together, you're thinking orange, and that's the most powerful way to influence those kids of the younger generations in the faith. Yeah, right. What do you make of thinking orange, Stu? Do you think orange? <laughs> yeah, well, I like the idea, yeah. yeah. Well, like orange the, is actually my favourite colour. Is it? There yes. you go. Mm. There you go. Um, <laughs> very, very good colour. Boring yeah. fact. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I've known you for a long time, but I didn't know that you liked orange. There you go. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, the... Um, thinking orange. Yeah, I like the idea of orange... I think that's very cool because it brings together a partnership between the church and the, the home and it encourages parents not just to think that they're outsourcing their spiritual development of their children to the church only. Uh, it encourages parents to think about praying at home with their kids, to read the Bible with their kids at home. Uh, and it's sometimes not uh, an obvious thing to do as a Christian family when I think it should be, like it's very biblical to to be a biblical family to to you know, share verses to say, oh, I was thinking about um, so-and-so the other day, should we, let's, let's stop and pray for that person. Or someone comes home from school and says, I've just had a terrible day, I've failed my exam, oh, we should pray about that. What, what we can do is create uh, spiritual rhythms in our home that really can grow a really beautiful, deep uh, and abiding spirituality in the home. Uh, so, yeah, the, the danger of compartmentalising my Christian life into, I, I'm a Christian at church, in my youth group and my, or whatever, and then I come home and I'm just a, we're our family so you know saying grace over, over around the dinner table um not all families um will do what my family does but one thing we've loved to do is have a family meal every night almost always turn the tv off just ask everyone how how they're going and um you know we we don't do that every night but it's a a really good thing to remind ourselves that to develop biblical rhythms in the home is actually part of what our responsibility is. I mean, a lot of parents think, I've got to bring my kids up to be able to handle money properly or play sport or play an instrument or, um, you know, there's all these other things that we're really passionate about and we spend a lot of money on, but do we actually spend a lot of time actually praying with our kids and reading the Bible with our kids, you know, that's actually even more important than all those things, as good as those things are. So, And what the yeah. family ministry model uh, therefore says is, if you're a church worker, mm. if you're a children's and a youth minister, um, part of your role is to equip the family to do that. That's great. Um, and so Timothy Paul Jones, um, uh, Struther uh, is another name, can't think of his first name right now. Um, they, have, they call it the family, the family equipping ministry. Um, and they say... Part of your role is to help parents do that. Um, and this is where the Think Orange, there's another really inf helpful insight from Reggie Joyner. He says, um, at best, uh, the average um, minister at a church, generational minister, kids or youth leader, um, has about 40 hours um, a year 
of influence on their kids. Um, the average parent, the average household, has about 3,000 hours a year of influence on their kids. So if some of your time and energy um, and passion as a kids or youth leader is actually influencing the home, you'll have exponential growth um, in those kids because you're actually influencing the 3,000, sorry, the, yeah, the 3,000 hours, not just the 40 hours. So it makes strategic sense that as a kids minister and a youth minister, uh, you want these kids to grow in their knowledge and love and obedience to the Lord Jesus. Um, how can you best do that? Of course, excellent programs, excellent um, things that you're doing in Sunday school, kids club, youth group, they're all really, really important. But if you even shaved off 10% of your time to influence the 3,000 hours that the parents have influence over their kid, then the growth of those kids, again, under God, um, presumably will increase. And so that's part of the family ministry model is saying, have, a, have an eye to the family, be equipping the family um, in their ministry to their kids, not just running excellent programs uh, that you're in charge of. So that's really significant. Which um, running just excellent programs kind of fits back in with the specialisation thing that you're talking about, rather, even if you're perhaps a youth minister or a children's minister, like you're saying, then if you perhaps de-specialise yourself a little bit and started help and were able to help out the parents, that would uh, yeah. you know you would see significant growth. And one of the things I um, coaching children's leaders in all the time uh, is parents will come to you with questions because there's a, there is a, a way in which your specialisation as a youth or kids minister um, is important. So, uh, you know, a good friend, Michael Greaves, um, significant youth leader here at Sorrow Church, uh, he has had far more experience with 13-year-old boys than I have. I've got exactly one, almost, not yet, 13-year-old boy in my household Michael has ministered to hundreds yeah, of year, 13 year old boys in his ministry. So there's a certain sense when I, as a parent, am going to come to Michael and say, I don't understand my son right now. What's going on? What's he, what's he doing? Tell me about 13 year old boys. And I need his specialization in that moment mm -hmm. because of his experience of hundreds and hundreds of 13 year old boys that he's discipled and looked after and mission to. So that's a really important partnership that we have. Um, and so it's also really strategic for Michael to be investing in my household because he cares for my son. And it's important for me to be investing in Michael uh, and the other youth leaders at Sorrow Bible Church because they are caring for my son. Um, and there will be times as uh, my son grows up that at the moment um, I'm still kind of in the dad rocks kind of boat. Um, but every teenager gets not to that point. Long. Yeah, not for long. <laughs> where it's like, oh, dad's a bit of an idiot. Um, and he can go to Michael and he can go to Stu um, and he can go, oh, my dad's a bit of an idiot. Um, <laughs> and Michael can go, yeah, he can be a bit of an idiot sometimes, can't he? Um, but uh, he actually really loves you. Um, and what I know is that um, I, I know and trust Michael and I know that he is going to be looking after my son uh, with the same philosophy, the same passion for my son to know and love and obey Jesus, um, to be outward looking and to be missional to his friends. I'm going to be encouraging that at home. Michael's going to be encouraging that at the church level. And so that's the thinking orange. Um, when Michael is most concerned about how my son's going to grow up, I'm most concerned about how my son's going to grow up. And as we work together, we're thinking orange. Um, and so that's where this whole thing can really be important and strategic for the church. Yeah, mm. cool. The other thing I'd like to say about that too is that 
uh, we've talked a lot on the podcast about third place theory that sociologists after Oldenburg in the 90s have said that in cities where we don't live in villages anymore, we don't live in the same place, work in the same place and have community in the same place anymore. We have three different places we live often in our culture. So we have the home, that's our first place. The second place is our workplace. And the third place are those places we have community. And what I like about this is um, it, it recognises that there is the we are Christians in the third, first place in our households and we have this community in the third place, the Christian church, but there's a link between the two. There's not just these two separate worlds that we, we live in. And I like the fact that we don't compartmentalise our lives too much between those. And one of a, a good example of that is that um, there's a lot of talk in Australia at the moment about um, the terribly sad rates of domestic violence in Australia and that there have been recent surveys that have come out to suggest that the rates of domestic violence in Christian homes uh, mirrors the rates of domestic violence in the broader culture. Now, there's a lot of research going into that and there's still more to be uh, explored in that. And we might even explore that particular issue in a later podcast. But one of the things I like about this is uh, if, if you're living as a Christian in the church, there's a connection between your home and the church and that there's a transparency and there's not an opaqueness between those two worlds. So if you just have the homogeneous unit principle and you just have different generations are all segregated off from each other in the church and the church itself is not consciously, proactively making links with people's household ministries, there's there's an opaqueness that takes place between the church and the home. So people can put on what, you know, you can have the, the, the car park miracle on the way to church. I don't know if you've ever heard of that old thing where, you know, People in the family are driving the church or the couple or, uh, you know, a mum and a, a daughter or whatever, and they're having this massive fight in the car on the way to church. But as soon as they pull up into the car park, there's this miracle. Oh, we're all happy and walk into church with big <laughs> smiles on our faces. Hi, everyone. And sometimes we can put masks on in church. Uh, but what we really think is great about community and this idea of uh, thinking of the third place in the first place being something that we talk about in connection with each other is uh, we, we actually have a bit more accountability between um, our families and you know what's happening in the church. It's not all about running the events in the church. It's not all about having really slick programs. It's actually about talking about our lives and what's happening in our lives and our relationships. And I think there needs to be accountability in our families, that we need to make sure that um, as a church we're encouraging uh, our families to be safe places. And when they're not safe places, we need to encourage people to seek help and to get out of those situations when they need help. So the Think Orange, for me, has also got a layer beneath the immediate observable layer of passing on the gospel from one generation to the next. But there's that accountability for the spiritual health of your family is something that it's good to be accountable for and and that we seek to create safe spaces in our churches and in our families too. Mm, yeah, I think that's really important. Uh, my next question was going to be about Family ministry emerged in the 2000s, is that correct? That was the, where it really started? There, yeah, there's a lot of really significant publications that come out uh, in the, in the mid-early 2000s. So I was just thinking about when you talked about how um, family, family ministry has a lot of things that are very appealing about it and very, um, very biblical and very uh, useful in the church. But then I noticed that perhaps it might have been a, a, a response to some of the things we'd seen throughout the 70s and onwards but you talked about the cultural changes in the 2000s and that are happening now. Is it perhaps that the, those cultural changes are highlighting that the family ministry 
idea may not fit exactly what's going on in the culture. In, sen- in the sense of it, it's it, it worked, it came to address the ideas of the homogeneous unit principle. But then when it comes into the 2000s, the 2000s are highlighting, hang on, this may not be an appropriate response to what's happening in the culture. Would are you, you saying because fam- the family unit's changing? Yes, sorry, yeah, that's yeah. what I'm trying to so say. For, yeah, no, that's helpful. I just, just to clarify, no, that was a really good question actually because the fastest growing unit in uh, in Australia today is people living alone. So that that is a family unit uh, that is growing quite significantly. Yeah, so that's a good question. Would you agree, Tim? Yeah, so what um, I think the family ministry does well is it recaptures that vision of households being the primary place of um, spiritual discipleship um, and so that's really significant um, and I think that's a good corrective um, it takes uh, it breaks down that specialization of ministry which is a really helpful corrective uh, and so in those ways yes it's a really really healthy um, way of um, bringing back the balance there but you are right the other tension to play in here is the changing nature of families and communities and I, I don't think that that's something that um, the family ministry literature that I've read so far has um, interacted uh, enough with. There may be some new stuff that I'm not aware of. Um, but again, uh, a lot of the stuff, and certainly the stuff that I'm reading, um, comes from uh, uh, you know, a conservative evangelical perspective. Um, and so that often has a very conservative view of what family is as well. Um, and so again, I think there are still some um, uh, either... Maybe implicit, maybe explicit assumptions of, you know, the the mum, the dad, the two and a half kids, white suburbia. So there's a lot of that overlay in there. Um, I would love if anyone has um, any suggestions on sort of a family ministry's perspective from, um, you know, Indigenous communities um, or racial diverse communities. Uh, I think that would be really interesting. Um, I think there's really interesting questions to ask and questions I have asked um, about uh, migrant communities. Uh, so I've got a good friend, uh, minister of a uh, church in Sydney, an ethnic church, uh, and we've had some interesting conversations ongoing about what is it like when you have, for his culture, there's Chinese migrant families um, who are raising up first-generation kids in Australia and they get to a point um, actually quite relatively early on in the child's life, where the parents, uh, Mandarin, say, uh, is better than their English and the kid's English is better than their Mandarin. And so the kid doesn't have to get very old for there actually to be communication difficulties in that family. So what does it look like for that those parents, Christian parents, um, who want to do family ministry, they want to disciple their kids, raise their kids to know and love Jesus, but you get this language barrier. Um, and what does that look like? Um, when they actually the the kids' language um, as they enter upper primary and adolescence is actually you know cutting across their parents, um, and then there's also cultural things go on as well. Um, a lot of migrant communities, I know uh, communities from um, some African countries, um, some Asian countries, Asian cultures, where the parents are trying to hold on to some of the things that made them distinctive um, as they've moved to. Australia, they've moved to a different country, they've wanted to hold on, like you mentioned about your family. Uh, what does it mean to be South African? Mm. And, not and my family, but I should. No, you're, sorry, not your family, <laughs> you're a friend of yours, you've got. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what does that mean? What does that look like? And trying to hold on to some of those where the kids are actually growing up, going to school in um, a Western society, uh, which has very different cultural values. And so all of those kind of things come into play as well. Um, and I 
again, from the reading I've done, I'm really happy to be corrected, I don't know if there's enough family ministry literature out there at the moment that deals with those kind of complexities. Mm. Um, what do you do with the changing shape of households? What do you do with the changing face of uh, families? Um, the different cultural things that come in. Um, and so, again, that's why I kind of thought of that, the middle as a good example of, yes, white, middle-class, suburban American, um, it kind of works. Uh, white, middle-class, suburban uh, Sydney, where we are, it, it kind of works. Um, but that there's, the kingdom of God is far bigger than that. Yeah. And, and so, Sydney's even bigger than that. And yeah, Sydney is far bigger mm. than that. Um, even the local communities around here mm. are, are bigger than that. And so... There, is, there are limitations there that the family ministry uh, philosophy at this stage um, has not yet matured into, um, again, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, that's a good phrase. That's a really, that's a really interesting way of looking at it because I think with the shock absorbers at Soul Revival, we're trying to embrace not only the nuclear family but also the extended family, uh, re, re-exploring what it looks like to have a role for the grandparents in the lives of the kids as well, not just mum and dad, also the aunties and uncles as well. Mm. Those and again, that there are, are some really, uh, last maybe five to ten years, there's been some interesting books out of this family ministry yeah, mob yeah. Um, okay. that yeah. are talking about grandparents. Yeah, so that yeah. has been yeah, something they've good, talked about good. a lot. Yeah, good. But, but yeah, we're also, um, you mentioned that people from African cultures, and I love that African saying that it takes a village to raise a child, not even a family. So one of my thoughts is we just want to go a little bit beyond that and, and have the church as a as a village that again not in the same sense of before the industrial revolution but that when we come to church there are spaces where we can relate to each other and we need to be in uh, intentional about doing more than just an hour service a week where we relate to each other symbolically but we try and have a meal together like a family does and we actually have interaction so that uh, that helps to have all those voices uh, to help bring up those the children in the church but also for kids that don't have christian families we're also thinking that too. And that leads me on to one other thing, if you, if you don't mind, Joel. Like mm-hmm. I'm just thinking one of the other limitations of the family ministry for me comes back to something we've been talking about uh, in earlier podcasts about focusing so much on discipleship, which this model does, can actually mean that it reduces uh, our missional impact. And it's interesting that since this family ministry model and the um, and also the No Guts, No Glory model from the 90s that we already looked at, since we've been really trying to rediscover a biblical discipleship in Sydney context, in the Anglican church, we've been really digging into discipleship, which has been great. But it's interesting to see that the number of newcomers coming to Sydney Anglican churches has started to decline since 2000 when some of these models have been really intensively applied in Sydney, the uh, family ministry and the and the also Bible study ministry and youth ministry. Because I, I think both these models have a, a, a missional approach, which is a bead approach to mission. So the idea of mission to young people in the family ministry is the same as... Um, maybe the No Guts, No Glory ministry from the late uh, 1980s. If you haven't listened to the podcast we did on that, the idea was get a group of Christian kids together for Bible study, teach them the Bible, and then get them to ask their friends one by one. It it appears to me that the family ministry is a bit similar, that the idea of mission will be families ministering to other families that they know and, and Christian kids inviting other Christian kids they know to come along to church. But... Um, one of the problems with that is that once you've asked all your friends and family that you know who will like you to come to church, then that sort of limits the amount of people who can come along to church. Now, studies have suggested that 75% of people in Sydney Anglican churches, where we are in a denomination here in Australia, 
75% of people in our church became Christians in their teenage years. So the newcomers coming to church are mostly teenagers. So if you if you pivot to a family ministry or pivot to a Bible study ministry alone for your youth ministry and you reduce the number of newcomers that are coming along because the kids run out of friends to ask, then that has a roll-on effect for the whole of the denomination, that the whole denomination's missional impact is declining and it's been declining since 2000 and continues to year on year uh, from the statistics that we're gathering. So I think there's a real need uh, to really investigate really good discipleship that sits alongside really good mission and that's why in the uh, the shock absorber approach we have the phrase that we share the truth and love of Jesus person to person generation to generation but also culture to culture and place to place and now we also talk about doing that space to space in the digital world as well to just try and have a bit more of a holistic approach that we think of mission alongside and I don't know what you guys think about that but I think that's the other thing about the family ministry that I'm a little concerned about. Tim, you've done so much research. Um, do you have anything to say about mission as well? Yeah, so I think that is uh, one of the big limitations to this model um, is that it's very discipleship-focused, as Stuart said, um, and so it sometimes can lose the, um, the missional aspect. Uh, the questions are raised in the literature, um, questions are, well, what do you do with a non-Christian kid um, who comes along to church? Um, and, yeah, the response is something like, oh, well, you try and find them some spiritual... Parents and so there's an intergenerational model there that says, "Yep, the, the household of God is a family." Um, but it's almost as if the the non-Christian uh, teenager or kid that comes to your church is a, is a little bit of an anomaly, um, and so you can kind of fold them in because there's enough of the um, church to welcome the odd one or two that are coming. Um, the family ministry model. I mean, we weren't aware of it. Uh, in the in the 90s and early 2000s when um, we were at Guy Mir Anglican, but I can imagine you know in you know late 90s 2000s we had what 400 teenagers coming, 350 of which were from non yeah. church families. Yeah, 80 percent of the kids that came along to our youth group at Guy Mir Anglican were from non church families. Yeah, so, yeah. And uh, I don't think the family ministry model in and of itself, for all of the wonderful things that we've said it does have. Um, I don't know if it is robust enough to know what to do with that. Uh, what, what would happen if you suddenly had a youth group where 80% of your kids uh, were from non-church families? So we had one particular uh, teenager that um, was in the group that I was leading um, whose parents were a non, non-Christian family, quite happy with him coming to um, youth group when he was in year seven or year eight. It was kind of nice for him to have something to do, um, uh, a phase he'll grow out of. Yep. Um, but... When he was year nine and getting to year 10, uh, the fact that he wasn't going down to the park and getting drunk with all his mates was a little concerning for the parent. They actually would have preferred that because that was more their culture. Like that's what you do as you age up. So with a, uh, a teenager like that, and we had a number of those teenagers at Guy um, yeah. you know, praise God that so many were coming to and committing uh, to Jesus and committing to his people. Um, Again, the, the family ministry model um, doesn't quite have enough uh, robustness about it to, to know how to deal with a large number of those teenagers um, because it's so, it's so heavily focused on the Christian households passing on the faith to Christian kids. So again, that's, that's right and that's good. Um, but what do we do with mission? That's a question that I'm not sure the family ministry model can answer um, coherently enough. And so we... 
that's why um, as I'm thinking about family ministry as I teach at YouthWorks College, uh, I've sort of I've folded it into a larger subject on intergenerational ministry. So it's now a subset, and that's how I'm thinking about it now, is that uh, intergenerational ministry is now the, the large concept. Um, one of the intergenerational relationships we want to encourage the church is Christian households to Christian children um, and f- help with that. That's a really important part of intergenerational ministry, but there's actually a much bigger conversation uh, and mission, the missional element, the evangelistic element needs to um, be formed into that as well. I think that um, in terms of talking about maybe some of the shadows of the family ministry, when uh, when you spoke about that story of that um, person at uh, youth group and their parents were presuming that they would take on their values, I think that's something we've actually been talking about a lot in the church is a presumption of like, well, we're going to do this model and then that we don't worry about the youth because they will just assume our values that we're saying. But as the culture has proven, that doesn't actually happen. Mm. Um, what would you say to that? I mean, I feel like the family ministry model is doing something similar in terms yeah. of you, we're presuming you would have a family. Um, and I don't think that fits with embracing difference. Mm. Um, what do you reckon, Stu? Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, Joel, I think the preparatory approach particularly was let's prepare the kids to not only take on the biblical values but also our cultural expression of church. Mm. And sometimes churches don't think that the cultural expression can change as the biblical values stay the same because the cultural around us changes. And so giving young people an opportunity to really uh, be immersed in in really good, strong biblical values, be able to read the Bible for themselves and to understand how to apply the Bible to their own lives means that the expression can change over time. So sometimes we get a little bit threatened if a young person says, why do we have three songs every service and this, 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 and we do that every week exactly the same? That can be a threatening question because it can be like, oh, hang on, are you challenging our Christian faith? Well, they're not really. They're just saying, why do we do it that way to start off with? It's just a why question. And it could even lead to another discussion that could be, well, is there any other ways we can do this? Let's together talk about how we do church. And look, here's our liturgy, and we think that liturgy is just the way we do a church service. Here's that. We really think there's some really strong elements in here. What do you think about that? Like, um, And thinking biblically like that together, giving young people an opportunity to say, you know, we have coffee before church every week and then we have church and then we go home. Why do we do that? Like, that's not challenging Christianity. That's just challenging the expression of church. Why do we have a youth group on Friday night? That's okay to ask that question. So I think the problem with the family ministry model could be that families just assume that kids will grow up and have the same expression uh, as the parents. Where it, I, But I think built into the family model, there's that conversational element where if parents are aware of that, they can actually be helping the young people to help them as a family to, to change their expression over time too. And I'm sure, you know, my family's like that. My boys have influenced me. Um, there didn't used to be any rap music in my house at all up until <laughs> a couple of years ago where one of my sons started listening to some rap music, which is not my genre. And, you know, I'm unapologetically a rock and roll fan. And so I brought them up to be like that too. And yeah, sure, Elijah likes Led Zeppelin and the Beatles, but he also likes to listen to some of his music too. The funny thing about that is I've started to like some of his music too. And now it just comes on in our household because it's part of who we are. And I think that's the piece that we need to make sure we are intentional about because if we're not, then it won't happen. And that's the power of of help allowing children to shape. And I'm sure that um, for those who have kids in their households will, will have those kind of experiences mm. where the kids have helped shape. Mm, that's right. Um, and there's a, there's a certain limitation 
to being in a family. You, you don't always get your way all the time. Mm. Um, but then there's something that's actually quite beautiful and rich when you mm. actually allow the imposition of another person to influence you and who you are. Mm. Um, and so ex- expanding that out, and that's something we haven't really talked about, maybe another episode, but the, uh, the analogy of the church as being family, yeah. as being the household of God, there's something really powerful about that, mm. that actually we, we allow the kids to influence the church, the household of God. We allow the teenagers to have a voice and to influence. Um, and it might be you know, the music style, like having rap instead of rock and roll, um, having drums instead of just an organ. Um, there's lots of ways in which we can actually allow that. Um, and it does mean that there will be limitations, there will be preferences that I have that I don't get to express. Um, but we are allowing that and actually the, the imposition of another person can actually draw something that's really beautiful. Mm, and again, embrace difference. Embrace difference, that's it. <laughs> um, I, I had one other question I wanted to ask was that last week we talked in the um, primarily about the inclusive congregational model and um, that was talking about how everyone in the family does everything at the same time at church and we kind of push back against that a little bit saying, well, we need space. The young people need space to be themselves as well. But I... Um, Listening back to that episode, Stu, I um, recognise you said they need that space, but then we also need to create an opportunity to communicate about those things. I would really love for you guys to talk about, like, possibly how we do that Soul Revival Church or in other contexts mm. of, like, how do we um, allow the youth to be able to experiment, as you were just talking about, but then also communicate with them about those experiments and their expression of the church. Yeah, I, I think what Tim said about the, the household of God, the mm. church as a family is is a really natural extension for next week. Like to, to jump into that next week would be really fun, almost a, as a part two to this uh, episode because the church is described in the New Testament as a family and that family is uh, a really rich and unique expression because uh, unlike any other family, we have God himself as our Heavenly Father because Jesus has died on the cross to reconcile us to God and we've been adopted into his family, which is just an incredible privilege. And so that, uh, you know, to see the church as a family is, is has been celebrated for centuries. It's a, a unique, beautiful thing. And it's unreal that it's so diverse and so many people uh, can be a part of that. And I think the, the experimentation part of it is that... Um, a, a, a little story just popped into my head then when you were saying it. I remember when I was growing up and my uncle and my father said, why don't we build a treehouse in the backyard? Now, I don't know if everybody has ever heard of a treehouse, but we, we uh, were living on the side of bushland in Australia, which is a forest in Australia. We, some people would call it a forest. And we lived in this bushland. And just inside the bushland, just near the edge of the house, my dad and my uncle and me and my brother walked into the to the bush and found a tree that was uh, appropriate for a little wooden treehouse that we made. And we got ladders and power tools and the four of us made a treehouse together. And my, my dad and my uncle made that treehouse for us so we could hang out in that treehouse. And I'm very old and I'm showing my age now, but my favourite TV show at the time was Batman. <laughs> and my brother and I would play Batman in the in the treehouse. And we'd ask our friends from the street to come and hang out as well. So being part of our family was having dinner around the table with mum and dad in our context. It's not always that for everyone. Uh, you know, having dinner with family could be having dinner with ourselves over Skype, Skyping someone around the world now. But uh, for us, it was we'd, we'd have time with our 
our parents and our siblings in, in the place we lived in the first place. But we also had this space that our family made for us that we could just have fun and and experiment with being being young, you know, like coming up with, you know, great imaginative ideas like mm. running around playing Batman. And all the the whole street used to park their bikes under the tree and we'd all hang out there and we'd get packed lunches and go and hang out there and stuff like that. So I think the church can do the same thing for young people and our families can do the same thing for young people that while we are bringing up our young people to have our values, I think we need to create spaces for them so that they can uh, be young. And, and I've got a lot of great childhood memories of having hanging out in that treehouse and all the fun we used to have. So, yeah, that's kind of answer to your question from me. You're still a fan of Batman, aren't you, Tim? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he's the best superhero. Oh, yeah. I yeah. agree, 100%. Yep. Hot, hot spice thrown at the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not a Marvel fan myself. I'm a bit more of a DC fan. Oh, I know that's that, fairly rare. What about you, Tim? Uh, look, if, if we're talking about the last, uh, what is it, 10 years of um, Movie. movies, then, I mean, Marvel is by far the superior uh, movie-making company. Um, but if we're talking about classic actual superheroes, then I really like Batman. Um, okay. And there's been some really great versions of that. Um, Tim Burton, uh, Batman, Batman Returns, they're my favourite ones, I think. Maybe another yeah. podcast, Batman. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, if anyone's listening, I don't... I couldn't care less. It's <laughs> <laughs> all right. You can talk about soccer and I'll talk about yeah, Batman. Right. <laughs> um, thank you guys that I belong in the same family as you two, which is really cool. And it's really cool to say that you are part of my, you are my family members. So that's really cool. Um, anything you want to finish on, Tim, in terms of the family ministry model and in relation to the Shulkers Orba? No, so just, I guess just to sum up, um, there, I really love the family ministry model. I teach it, I coach in it. Uh, really believe in it. It's, it's a significant part of how I shape my ministry here at Soul Revival um, with those caveats in mind that we are thinking about, okay, there are, um, let's try not to assume that family is a particular way, that it's always two parents, two and a half kids, um, that there's more expressions of family than that. How do we reach those? Uh, and also we want to use the strength of that model to then be outward looking. And we want to be saying, uh, how do we be missional? How do we, yes, be missional as families? Like, I mean, there is value in the BEAT approach in saying, talk to your next door neighbours, invite them to church, invite them to a dinner. Um, there's, there's value in that, but we want to go bigger as well. And, and so, as we've talked about a number of episodes, the, the missional um, import of the church to actually go beyond that, um, which I think is where a couple of weeks ago we talked about um, Chap Clark's missional approach. There's a lot of really great correctives in that. Uh, to churches that just can become inward focused uh, and only specialise in discipleship rather than actually being outward looking. So that's a really significant one. And to see families as a part of a much larger network of um, intergenerational ministry. And so to see the church as family um, and what that means, that all of the different generations, regardless of who or who is not in their household, um, is part of the family of God. And so that's a really significant part as well. Well, as you said um, earlier, God's kingdom is bigger than that. God's family is bigger than that. So that's a great way to finish. Thank you very much, guys, for joining us on this podcast. And thank you for listening as well. Uh, If you want to keep going on with the discussion, you can jump on the Discord, which will be in the show notes. You can jump on the, just hit the link on that. Uh, You can also email me at joel at shogazorba.com.au. And you can also check out all the other content that Saw Revival are putting out, uh, particularly on YouTube or on your favourite podcast app, which includes Chip Lunch. And we also have some digital services if you're interested in checking that out. Um, As for that, I think we can finish up and say thank you to Stu. One way. Thank you, Tim. One way. 
And thank you from me, one way. <laughs>